Welcome to React Roundup. I'm Jack Harrington, your host. And with me today are TJ Van Toll. Hey, everybody. And Paige Niederinghouse. Hello, everyone. And today we have Tom Norton here to talk about a wide variety of topics, including but not limited <laughs> to Next.js and some performance stuff. I know that that's an interesting one and, and accessibility and all kinds of great stuff. Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure thing. Hey everyone, I'm Tom. I'm a freelance designer and developer currently based out of Switzerland. Although I must say I do uh, most of my work for, for clients in the US and in Canada. Get ready for some opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Dev. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Dev. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Well, actually, yeah, let's talk a little bit about this, this article that you wrote when it comes to Next.js and in particular, the upgrade that they made or, uh, well, I guess questionably upgrade that they made to SWC for comp compilation code. Yes. For sure. So I think um, the news that with Next.js 12, we were going to move to a native toolchain for part of the dev tooling, I think was probably inevitable. I think like we've been seeing this coming for a while and uh, it's definitely exciting to see this new tech coming in. I, I haven't really seen SWC enter into my kind of sphere yet as uh, as part of building React apps until until this. And so I think when, uh, when I saw that news, I was kind of, wow, this is amazing. I've got to do some tests. I'm going to write this really excited article about how much faster it is. I, I can't believe it because like in a lot of the work I do on bigger apps, the build time is kind of a bit grating. It's a bit slow. And you know, when you're in CI environments, it can be really, really slow to the point where and expensive. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like those build minutes aren't free. So um I do think I, I got really excited about that. And so I, I did some like very non-scientific tests. And um, I picked a few repos with varying complexity. I mean, Next.js is one of those things where if you really want to test it, you have to test a whole bunch of different use cases because there are so many. So I picked, uh, I picked like the simplest, like new repository case. What's the new toolchain like compared to the old toolchain? And um, just for, for some extra context. So the new, the new toolchain is, is SWC, which is based on Rust. So we should be seeing like native performance for a bunch of this stuff. There's a, a couple of caveats still, but the, the basic idea is that it should be way faster than Babel. Anyways, I picked three cases, um, which were like the like, brand new fresh repository. What happens if we build the starter? We you know, create next app type starter. Uh, what happens if we build like simple projects? So my uh, personal website is like partially statically rendered, partially server side rendered, um, features a blog, features a bit of this, bit of that, like a bit of custom stuff. Um, but nothing like nothing too crazy or revolutionary. And then a much, much bigger project that, that I've been working on on the side for a while, which 
is a little bit more out there in terms of some of the features that it includes, like some of the extra wrinkles there are as part of the build process, etc. And well, needless to say, on Windows, it was slower across the board, which I wasn't really expecting. Hmm. I think, but, but Tom, their website says SWC is twenty <laughs> times faster than Babel and seventy times faster on four cores. Well, it must are you be. telling me that's misleading? Probably <laughs> <laughs> for me to make allegations, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, I don't know what exactly the problem was. I have a really strong suspicion that SWC isn't actually the culprit. I think the the likely, yeah. the likely business here is that, well, file access on Windows is sucky. I think we <laughs> we all know this. If you've ever built a big project in uh, like a C++ project on Linux or, you know, on a Linux like Mac OS or something, it's fast. Um, but if you try and uh, if you try and do something that involves a lot of files on Windows, you tend to find that you're going to start suffering in that department. So um, I think there's something to do with the fact that the build chain, like the build tool chain, sorry, is very different. Than uh, than how we were invoking Babel, it's probably caused some some headaches. I mean, the the first thing that I like I wanted to make clear as part of writing the article is like, I mean, one of the headings is bad science because I'm not doing good science by any means. <laughs> like, I wanted something qualitative and something you know something a little bit feely. Is it better in in practice for your use case more than kind of lab type testing? That being said, um, so I, I I got a message back from. From the dev advocate from, uh, from mm-hmm. Lee over at Vercel about it, saying that they've been testing this with their clients for a while and they've seen a lot of improvements. And so I found myself being a bit like confused as to why I was getting bad results. I mean, the, con- the conclusion that I explained just before I came after a little bit of consideration, a little bit of thinking about it, because at the time I sort of thought, uh oh, have I just found a big problem for these guys? I don't want to, like, I more than anything have been excited and wanted to share some cool news because I do write <laughs> the occasional article about this and that. And, uh, that's all I was really interested in doing. And I think um, some people saw that as a little bit like I'm trying to trash Next 12 and that shouldn't be farther from from what I want to do because I love Next.js. I think I'm going to probably wax lyrical about this later. I'm a big, big fan of, of this whole paradigm shift for the industry. I think it's opened a lot of doors that I really wasn't expecting to be opened yet <laughs> in, in lots of ways. And so um, I think... Uh, it's one of those ones where I, I think I could very easily, I could very easily, you know, sermonize about how you mustn't upgrade to new tech straight away because there are risks and stuff. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know. This is really one of those cases. I think uh, probably any of those wrinkles will be found sooner than later, and I don't think it really will be slower in in the longer term. But anyways, yeah. In general, I, I find it's usually better to to be forward and to publish stuff like this, like the Next.js team would rather know about issues. Like as long as you're presenting it respectfully, right, you're not trashing them, then they absolutely would want to know this. Because even though you're not doing like, quote unquote, real science, I mean, if you hit this with some basic apps, other people are as well. Usually when you want to design APIs like this, you want to make them fairly idiot proof and hitting more common use cases. So... I mean, I think there is something here. Uh, and it, and by the way, if just in case anybody else was curious, SWC stands for Speedy Web Compiler. I had to look it up because I was <laughs> I was curious. It was bothering me. It's a technical me. term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah sure. There's also ES Isn't build. That, I don't I don't want to call it Speedy Web Compiler if it turns out to be that. <laughs> so maybe it's just Web Compiler. I don't know. <laughs> But uh, yeah, also to be to, to be completely transparent about it as well. One of the things that was part of that discussion I had with with Leo over Twitter was like, 
asking for a repo for some stuff and and I didn't actually send them any repos in the end. I tried to 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 spark up a conversation about that. The big project I wasn't super comfortable sharing because there's some some privacy stuff there. Um but uh but I was happy to share like my website code, even though that's kind of private, but absolutely fine showing that to them. But we never really managed to work that out. So I think um there's probably more I could have done to be more helpful to, to Versa. I mean, I, I think that's probably the, the big positive is, yeah, if you signal problems, people can figure them out. But I don't think I've done more than say there's a bug and not really <laughs> gone much further than that. So mea culpa in that respect, I think. Sure, if you found it, you won't be the only one who runs into it. And eventually there will be somebody who can share a large repository, whether it's open source or, you know, something that their company is comfortable with letting a a next engineer take a look at. So it's that's one of the things that I love about the web community is that people are so willing to help and try and figure it out, even if it's not necessarily their problem or it's not their responsibility to fix it. A lot of developers will just kind of start going down the rabbit hole and pulling on the thread until they figure out what what's actually one of the issues or one of the solves for it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think- so Tom, how long have you been working with Next versus React versus any of the other frameworks you might have used in the past to, to do your job? Well, this will probably be this will be my fifth-ish year of React development, but Next is actually pretty recent. I think um, I was quite late to the Next party in, in lots of ways because I sort of thought, do I really need server-side rendering for a lot of the use cases that I have? Quite often, uh, more often than not, you know, working in in teams at various organizations before I went freelance, like a React app is enough. Like the bar is kind of not necessarily that high because you know you're not you're not looking to match a whole bunch of use cases. You're not trying to say like you can you can afford to have a separate repo for a marketing site and for your application. You know, you can you can afford to do all of these things and, and next felt a little bit like, okay, this is cool, but I, I don't care about it yet. I'm still comfortable <laughs> with create React app. And so yeah, next is next is kind of new, but I think ever since I uh ever since I, I kind of got what they were driving at with it i think it's uh it's very hard to look back it's really hard to look back actually just because i think i've i've used stuff like gatsby before where you've got to make caveats like they're, they're sorry you have to make compromises sorry there are caveats that go to using it you get a static web page out of it and that's really cool and you get to use all the tools you like and everything else but not everything works that way and there are a few impositions about some of the tooling you use you, know, you have to use reach router which <laughs> um, you have to use uh, some things right but next feels like while some of those caveats are still there, you there's a trade for it. You're getting something really, really massive in return. And I think I think there's a, that's a compromise I'm much more happy making for the flexibility that Next gives me. Yeah, I've I've used Gatsby and I, I used it to build my personal website as well. And it was cool because I liked learning about some of the stuff that Gatsby enforces, like GraphQL queries and having to use static site generation. But at the same time, it was a real pain in some regards. And I, as I've recently started using Next as well for the job that I do now. And same thing. It's just so much more flexible, but it still provides that full application API endpoint layer that React just does not. Which if you think about it, they really probably should because how often are we going to have a site that doesn't need to reach out to a third-party API for some sort of data or a database or something. It seems kind of, I get why they did it. And I understand that it's, you know, the view portion of the MVC triumvirate. But at the same time, it's like, you really kind of should 
make some suggestions at least beyond just build an express app and throw it in there and there's your proxy. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. I think um, there are some some things about next like API pages layer, which is super cool. In fact, I've been using that to build a full stack app. And you know, you, you throw a nice ORM like Prisma in there and mm. and you wonder how you ever did things in the past. <laughs> like it's it's crazy. But it's also still kind of a bit like it's still a bit like you here's here's a function you can write that will return your thing it's like an, an express route and i don't know i think i always had higher hopes for for what back-end development like on with node would be like i didn't know about it for ages because i you know i did stuff with uh with with python and django for a while django rest framework and all sorts of stuff i mean i'm don't get me wrong i'm a front-end developer and my back-end experience is limited but i have done some stuff um but like Coming over to people using Node and Express, I was like, is, is this it? Is this <laughs> how we're doing things? <laughs> like in 2019, is this how we're really doing things? Yeah. Um, that was so, a good uh, thing. This is Express it. is still the gold standard for Node. <laughs> which is which is wild, right, really? I mean, that being said, there there's like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Nest, JS? Oh, yeah. Oh, bit. yes. Um, Nest is great. So Nest is super cool, right? Nest is yeah. like, Let's take this approach that is like abstraction heavy and let's, let's include all the batteries and give you all the tooling and make it easy to plug in with like really common use cases and everything. And so it's tempting to say, okay, well, then we'll use, we'll use Nest as a, as a background. And, and I think some of Nest paradigms, the Angular paradigms are kind of eh, uh, for me. But that is in, Nest in, in some, in some <laughs> use cases, right? Um, okay. But there is something that's really, really cool. There's a, a small agency over in the Netherlands, this e-commerce agency that, that wrote this library that let you use decorators like you can for Nest endpoints and basically write your next API pages as a class, and mm. which kind of like what I wanted from my, what I wanted from my API endpoints is be able to use decoration, be able to use a little bit of like, okay, every request needs auth, every request needs this. This is like a perfect decorator pattern type thing. And, you know, in Python, you can decorate functions. And you can't in, uh, in JavaScript slash TypeScript, which is probably one of the, like the biggest, the biggest cries I've had about technology <laughs> in recent <laughs> years, learning that that wasn't possible, especially as it's still like a proposal. It's still not a thing. And yet we're past the stage of changing it. Um, but anyway, the point is like, I've, I've, I found just having API pages as being like, as a kind of express type endpoint, you can use express middleware, good luck, Joe, to be not super good as your code base starts to, starts to like starts to grow and starts to scale and so i found like there are things out there that are really trying to like nail down this problem of okay i need like a thin api layer it's going to interact with the database and maybe might do a little bit more of this a bit more of that a few more side effects but this like this extra tooling i mean i've I've been able to build stuff with like role-based access control and some of the more like enterprisey features audit logging you know event-based programming and all sorts even though it's supposed to be like a paper thin layer of your Next.js app. And I, and I don't mind the coupling of having them be running on the same host, especially if I'm server-side rendering the pages. I think, doesn't TypeScript have an experimental decorators implementation? I don't know if you've, been, you've toyed with that at all. I'm wondering if that could implement some of what you're looking for. So that, that's exactly what, what Nest actually uses. It uses the TC39 proposal. So TypeScript. Oh, okay. They're like kind of precocious TypeScript. I feel like they, the guys over at Microsoft are just a little bit like, let's do everything now. And we'll say it's in TypeScript, even though it's not in JavaScript. But if you really want to still write JavaScript in 2022, you can use this Babel plugin. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And so in 
with the proposals for JavaScript is that you can decorate the class and you can decorate the class method. You can decorate arguments to functions, but you cannot decorate the function itself. You can just use regular function composition for that. That was their argument is that regular composition is fine because functions are so flexible. But I think in terms of maintainability, decorators are super good for, uh, you know, for describing repeated code like that, especially like more often than not, you're going to find yourself onboarding a junior developer onto your project. And if you can explain like, here's this code that's being injected. This is how that works and explain these concepts. It's much better than saying, okay, when I call this function, it's going to return a function, which will return a function, which will eventually do the thing we want to do. <laughs> right? That's so hard to understand. It took me forever to understand. <sighs> Callbacks, higher order functions. Yeah. Right? Oh, and Redux middleware. It's like, what is it, like three different levels of nested functions? Like, really? <laughs> on create, on enhance. Oh, good and God. Something. <laughs> right. Thank um, God Redux tools. Yeah, I think, I, and the thing is, what I feel like it's one of those rites of passage for a developer. Now that I get higher order functions, the more functional JavaScript I can write, the more declarative I can make all of the things, the better. But it's still <laughs> kind of gatekeeping for new devs. Mm. Yeah. In my day, we only dealt with functions five levels deep. Yeah. <laughs> Functional programming you was the yeah. answer. Yeah. Oh. Kids don't know how easy you've got it. <laughs> well, this is it. No, mate. Seriously, my brag these days is that I don't remember the last time I actually wrote a for loop. Do you? <laughs> I don't remember the last time I wrote a for loop for anything. You can do it with map filter reduce or even, you know, if you're feeling dirty for each. You can mm-hmm. make most of these things. Uh, like, I had to write a while loop recently, which was a blast, but <laughs> typically no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where we have an unbelievable luxury. I mean, especially the, I'm, I'm just going to say TypeScript from now because, you know, but the expressive power of TypeScript as a language is just crazy. There's nothing like it. I think there's some quirks about TypeScript that I really hate and that, uh, you know, th- that are legacy of a bygone era and stuff. But, but now I, there is no other language that I like using as much because if I want to just say, okay, here's the shape of some data and I'll do this thing on it, there's kind of no, better paradigm really you you have all the luxuries of all the other languages as well they've all just kind of been rolled into this thing <laughs> yeah it's uh like uh, i can't count how many things from lodash have been built into just javascript now that you get for free and that's yeah. uh, it's crazy it's crazy how good it is so going back to create react app for a second there is a i think an es build in uh Krako. so you would install Krako, upgrade your your create React app, and then you'd go and bring in the CS build plugin, and right. I think that would actually, I think, actually improve the time as well. Have you experienced? Have you tried ES build or SWC with React Native? I know you're a React Native fan too. So no is the short answer. Mm. No, I have I haven't done much messing around with tool chains for React Native, especially because like there's just so many wrinkles that come with building a React Native app. Um, more often than not, if I can get away with using like the the managed React Native workflow, I will because like. I do have a Mac and I bought a Mac to write React Native apps. Like, uh, I bought a MacBook for that, but I don't want to have to use it all the time. <laughs> it's, it's the short version. I, I like Mac OS and I like using my Mac, but I also, I had a tower before that. I have a tower now. And like, I know that there are solutions out there, but I'm already too much of a curmudgeon to, to go out there and spend the money and get them now. <laughs> And integrate them into the way I work because more often than not, pretty much all the work I do for my for my clients at the moment, I can get away without having to use my math at all. It's travel, pretty much. So, no, I haven't. Is <laughs> the answer to your question? <laughs> Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and 
in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. That's completely remarkable. I can't imagine switching back and forth between different operating systems to do mm-hmm. development on a regular basis. I've never, I never learned to program on a Windows machine and I never want to go to having to program on a Windows machine. I guess because we, oh. we actually have a developer that we work with and everybody at, at our office kind of can choose what they want. So we have some people running Linux, some running Macs, some running Windows. And it seems like the poor QA person with the, with the Windows machine always has issues that none of the rest of us have with getting stuff installed and getting packages to work and collisions mm. between WSL 1 and 2. Oh. And yeah, it just makes me sad. <laughs> well, but at, the, blame you. but at the same time, like it's important to have the Windows people because what, like probably if you're building anything that's going to run on Windows, it's still the biggest OS out there. So like ignoring it is silly, both from a usability and business perspective. Mm. I will say too, like, because I've done a lot of Windows in previous lifetimes, and it's not really all that bad to switch back and forth. Honestly, the biggest thing is your your fingers remembering control versus command is the single mm. biggest thing. Like, Because when you go back and forth, I used to work on Windows during the day and then try to use a Mac later in the day. And it <laughs> takes like, it takes like a good like half hour before you hit command or control correctly. It's it's just which is why then your brain swaps them around for me. Oh, nice. <laughs> I was starting to get this weird like numb thumb thing because of the way that the command is oriented like on an, on a traditional like right the regular position of command is in this weird spot and command C and command V I was kind of like crunching my thumb under so I ended up remapping it to caps lock <laughs> actually my, my it's actually pretty smart well. yeah yeah, yeah and I haven't gotten the numb thumb in a long in a long time. <laughs> Yeah, and I can't remember the last time I used the caps lock key to caps lock. Right, no. So. no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You guys some weird edge cases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't shout regularly. <laughs> <laughs> I think I end up using caps lock more accidentally than otherwise, and so I have to kind of take the shift a lot. But, it's uh, a huge key. It's, yeah, it's, a, right. like, in, like, it's as big as the yeah. But sometimes you want to write in capitals, and no one's figured out how to change and shift and then the key you want to press. Because <laughs> holding on that shift is so hard. Yeah, right. It's, it's it's really difficult. Seriously though, I had to like I had to relearn to not use caps lock. The vast majority yeah. of my growing up and young adult life, I spent really? using the caps lock key. Yeah, because I'm like, well, I'm gonna write in caps, don't I? <laughs> That's my use case. <laughs> when do I not want to write in caps? That's the question. <laughs> 
So, so Tom, I know you haven't experienced much with build tools of React Native, but I know you have done some React Native stuff. Do you want to talk about like what you've done there? Because I mean, you, I, I believe you have a book for React Native too that uh, we want to hear about as well. I do. It's very much, uh, very much in progress at the moment. But I'm writing a pretty comprehensive guide to animating React Native apps. In fact, that's what it's going to be called as far as concerned <laughs> right now. I think React Native is one of those things which is on the face of it easy. That has some has some real challenges under the hood for certain types of thing that you would think would be pretty comparable to to how things work on the web. But the reality is, I think if I were to class all the problems you have with React Native, I'd say animation is one of the hardest because it's uh, it's like you have a different approach for lots of different kinds of the same thing. It's not like it's not really like on the web where CSS can be your friend for so many things and and JavaScript will drive the rest. I uh, I basically am going to cover everything from like how you animate layout transitions to the core animated API. We're going to talk about React Native reanimated and turbo modules and the architecture shift and uh, going to cover all the goodies there because I think if you want to be able to do it all, you have to learn it all. And like the re-architecture has opened a couple of doors in that respect. But I think and um, beyond some people in the community, people like uh, William Condillon, the the he, I think he's French. He lives in Switzerland, and he makes videos about you know rebuilding nice interactions from native apps and using reanimated or various things. Are kind of what's keeping that alive at the moment because otherwise it would just be too difficult. I think the a lot of the knowledge there is concentrated in a lot of private sources, and mm. it's not that easy. I mean, I still think despite the availability of stuff like Lottie, Lottie is mm-hmm. kind of hard. Man. Lottie's kind of hard to work with. It's kind of like. We had to know After Effects in the I first mean, place. Well, yeah. Yeah. Body moving, and then, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that. And then if everything works, it, you know, your animation will, will work. And, and I found like, I tried to do some work building on that. I read to the open source library to be able to, to link sequences of Lottie animations together so you could transition between different animations and, and this and that to try and get as much out of it as I could. But that's easily a dead end. And then at the same time, it does offer a lot of advantages. So the book is basically going to be as educational as possible and, and try and go quite deep into how you do stuff with reanimated and how you build like really satisfying interactions as well as just, you know, decorative animation and, and transitions and, and stuff like that. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's in the works this year. I imagine that will be finished sometime towards the end of the year. But like, there's a whole lot to cover still. <laughs> so, if you're doing React and native animation, and I really have not, so I'm asking as a complete beginner, are there libraries that you would recommend using, or is it more of a thing that you would build natively into an, a React native application? There are definitely libraries. <laughs> almost always say use libraries, either part of the core library, or I'd use a third-party solution because I think. I think if you like, if you're an, an expert native app developer already and you want to just bolt that on and say, nah, forget the managed workflow. I, I want to stay on my Mac all day. Um, <laughs> then, then by all means, right. But, uh, I think if you want to write, you know, your animations in a way that, that keeps that level of complexity out of it, I think there are many libraries that give you that, that native performance, but it comes with some caveats. And um, so I, I would say like, it kind of depends on your use case. If it's something very simple, you can use the core library. If it's something, you know, decorative, should we say, if it's something that's part of, you know, your app starts or whatever, you can use Lottie for that. 
small transitions in UI, you can use stuff like you can use stuff like layout animation, or maybe even as part of navigation, there are things that build on some of the lower level libraries, like shared element transition libraries that are built into React navigation. But if you really want to do the super low level stuff, you've got to be you got to get a bit more up to speed with React Native reanimated, with worklets, with the new API, with the not graph based stuff anymore, and 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 get to grips with that. And that's non trivial, but super powerful at the same time. Cool. So Paige did a course a while back on, or no, I think just recently on on keeping applications up to date. And it was interesting. Like I don't think I've seen applications rot as fast as React Native applications. It's like if you if you have a React app, you know, you let it sit for a year, the dependencies are gonna be like two days, maybe a day, two days to fix a year later. You know, React Native, you, you gotta keep on that stuff like every two months or else, <laughs> you know, you're way behind. I feel like it's very easy to never actually finish a React Native app. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping right. staying well, pre-release the whole time because at least that way you never have like an obligation to keep it updated. Well, the thing you're trying to keep up with the example code, you know, and yeah. you're with your your book. Yeah. No, the the no, thing no, about no, React. No, sorry, go on. Yeah, I was going to say the other thing about React Native too is, at least on the web, you know that the browser doesn't really change. Like there are some new things, but the browser's not going to change underneath of you. Whereas iOS and Android are constantly changing, mm-hmm. and Xcode and Android Studio and the the cloud based tools that both of them use, like Google Play, the the App Store, all that stuff is constantly changing. So you kind of have to be way more vigilant. <laughs> Yes. Yes. I also think like probably one of the other things that doesn't often get that much talked about, but how much of a double-edged sword over-the-air updates really are, I think, uh, because there's that whole like frequent update ELO that you get, you know, that you get this special karma for frequently updating your app on app stores. You should define what over-the-air updates are for people that aren't familiar with that term. So there are... Some approaches, so uh, the Expo framework for React Native apps that let you ship a new version of just the JavaScript bit of your app over without having to download a new version of the app from the App Store, which means your app can be updated instantly without going through the review process, without any of the lead time. Oh, that's now out there? Yeah, oh yeah. I wouldn't even with that for like a gazillion years. So that, and and uh, Apple's actually going to approve that? It's so, so powerful because like your app will load the old version when it downloads the new bundle. And then we'll just start the new bundle up next time, nice and quietly. But you can, you know, you've got all the configuration that goes around that if you want. I mean, yeah, but like uh, the app, Apple will actually approve that because I know that they're woo, they're super sticklers about it. So yes, they did, and I, I thought we'd use that. <laughs> cool. That. I mean, you know, you don't want to replace all the all the headings in your app with expletives from one day to the next. To see. <laughs> yeah, get yourself banned. I- Perfectly. Actually, because I've been involved, I've been involved with this from like the legal side of this and <laughs> previous roles, and that Apple's exact terms is basically you're allowed to update your app on the fly as long as kind of to Tom's point, you don't fundamentally change like the nature of the app. So okay, right. you can't like make a game and then suddenly turn it into a like a casino app or, or <laughs> like something like that, right? But they allow it because they they also see some value in like if you need, if you have a show stopping bug and you need to push out like a hot fix, sure. Like you want to get those that out to people like immediately versus having a couple days of just having a broken app too. Yeah, I think they had like speed lane cards 
and then you get like three a year or something like that. And and you could like say, I, this is a hot fix. We need to get through this through the process like now. And then you have to burn up those through the year. Mm. That was what I heard. I also so think that, that, that the rules kind of don't apply the bigger you are. You can rattle a few, uh, you know, I don't know what the, what the word is, but you can, you can make it fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> get your problem solved pretty quickly. Whereas if I'm like, Still not working. Please don't. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not very good. Like, how many users do you have on your app? How many downloads do you have? But, uh, but yeah, I think, um, over the year updates are, are super powerful, but mm. I think it's only really that worthwhile without taking a potential punishment there somewhere. Unless we're prepared to, you know, unless you already have loads of users and your app is already a thing. But I think if you're trying to grow that um, organically, on the app store, I think it's kind of hard unless you're pushing updates and being active and, and creating that kind of hidden reputation for you as a developer and, and for your app on the uh, on those marketplaces. Because I mean you know they're all data driven. They're all going to be super super focused on a lot of metrics and data collection. So I think over the year updates kind of slide they slide past that, which comes with a whole bunch of like practicality benefits. But I think you do lose out on some of the like the imprints in the sand you can make, so to speak, by by shipping regular updates. Cool. Um well time I know you we had warned our listeners that we had a wide variety of topics to cover and I'm told you have some thoughts around accessibility as well. Do you have any hot takes there to to share with us? I think I wanted to talk about accessibility mostly is something that I'm really into this year. Um, and I was last year as well, I think. And it's a, a double challenge for me because I do design and I do development. Some, for some clients, I do both. For some clients, I do one or the other. Accessibility is like a really interesting problem academically as a designer. And it's, it's a very interesting practical problem as a developer because I think we're seeing this regulatory shift in the States where if you want to sell to, to US government bodies, you know, there are accessibility standards now that you have to meet, which is amazing. I mean, finally regulations are catching up about this sort of thing, but I suppose I would definitely want to discuss some of the challenges you have about trying to get people in organizations on board with having accessibility as a priority. Because I think some people, uh, some people see it a bit like kind of an HR thing that they have to do. Like it's something you have to do and, and it's not necessarily a, a fundamental concern. And I think you have to train designers pretty carefully because as a designer, you learn to, to, to sort your information into hierarchies. And to look at the majority use case for things and to understand what stuff you don't really need to see and, and to really kind of make value judgments about bits of information that you need to lay out on a, on a page. And I think inclusivity is not necessarily compatible with that at a first glance. And that's why we make apps accessible. It's, it's not just to meet regulations. It's, it's because we want to be inclusive. And that's, I think, something you have to train your designers quite carefully about because I think someone who's got those axioms of, information hierarchy and no most people will see this so it's okay as a way of <laughs> designing experiences that you end up losing out really big on accessibility and um, when it comes to, to to working as a developer with accessibility i think it's too hard to always have it in mind i think you, but you want to influence culturally at organizations i think you want to make it part of core tool chains you want to kind of take it a step lower than the way most people do their things. Because if you try and make it like something that you guys want to do, you have to catch that code review. And you're never going to catch everything at code review. Code review is hard already. And I think, so like I, for example, I, I know that uh, we've been talking about things that we like. I'm, I'm a big fan of Chakra UI because... Um, oh, yes. Because the fundamental approach of that is app should be accessible. You can make it look whatever you like. You can make it look like whatever you like. But some of these like core stuff, it's just going to be accessible. So that way you can't get it wrong. 
and it makes a point of being annoying about some things, it will slow mm-hmm. you down to mm-hmm. make sure that you use the right, you know, accessible elements and stuff. I mean, that being said, it's still not the can you make me an accessible drop down select box rabbit hole of, a, of accessibility. It doesn't solve every problem. But um, I think this year I'm, I'm trying to see how in some of the organizations that I work for where I, I do lead teams, how I, you can kind of make that that impact that way instead of just being the person in the corner who kind of mentions it as a postscript. Because I think there's, that does do a lot more than you think. I think it's always important to not shut up about it, even if you are going to annoy people, because I think it's it's often seen as like a side concern when it really shouldn't be. I think we should strive to be inclusive. That being said, there's lots of times when I've made decisions about some feature that I'm going to implement. And uh, I think about the majority use case, slap it together, jobs are good. And, you know, I've signed off on that. But it's only later when I've, you know, I've looked back on it and been like, oh, yeah, I made some mistakes there. I made some real mistakes there. And and that's something to learn from. You know, you put that 20% light gray text on a white background because it looks so sweet. <laughs> yet only 20% of the population can actually see it. <laughs> I um and so like I, I'm trying to build a toolkit this year of things that like I will check off on a on a uh, on like a code review even I know we talked about this being hard at code review I think one of the ways you solve some of those problems is with tooling I think you know your your linter make sure that you include this and that and everything else and that that solves the problem like unit tests solve the testing problem it solves a surface level version of that um and I think. But I think like when you're reviewing design, it's you've got to think about contrast ratio. You have to think about, and this is way harder. This is like being very fastidious. You have to think about how various forms of colorblindness are going to impact the way that your content is received. That's really difficult. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that that's something that I've been able to do for all the projects I've ever done ever. It's really, really difficult. Um, but I definitely think, you know, text legibility, contrast ratios. These, I mean, these are the kind of things that tools are getting better at catching anyway. Um, but I, I think. It's definitely a priority for me this year because I think I've got to a point where a lot of the other things don't feel so difficult because the tooling on the web is so amazing. Tooling will catch so much for you that these are problems that are probably a layer of abstraction higher in some way that uh, that I think are, are kind of reflective of a lot of the things that we're trying to change in the world. I think accessibility is one of those big ways that we can we can make an impact in that respect in our industry, quite apart from everything else. Do you have any resources beyond Chakra or places that people could go to get better at accessibility? Because I think that that's, like you said, it's the thing that a lot of people want to be better at, but figuring out how to be more accessible or to write more accessible code is not, at least in my previous experience, it's not been a very straightforward path. It's a lot of looking at documentation or examples. There's not really like a nice condensed thing of this is where you can go to make sure that you're writing good inputs or good drop downs or headers and things like that. I think um, I think I would completely agree with you that it's not a straightforward thing. I don't have a silver bullet for this. And I think <laughs> probably whoever does come up with a really solid scientific accessibility course, I mean, it can really uh, be confident about what it teaches you. Because I also think a lot of these things are kind of hearsay. Uh, it's, it's not accessible. Why? Because I don't like how it looks. Um, <laughs> that happens a lot. I, I, I wish I had something that I could recommend that is just like the perfect guy. But I think mm-hmm. someone can uh, someone can develop something like that. Probably they, they already have. I'd be very interested to to understand how that works a bit better because everything I've picked up has been passive. Everything I've picked okay. up has been by doing the job and, and learning from somebody more wisdom yeah. than I am with more gray hairs. 
about <laughs> the, the dangers of inaccessible dropdowns. <laughs> <laughs> so experience is the best guide that you've found as well. So far, yeah. And the WCAG. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been fascinating. And thank you for sharing. And, and that, it's an awesome note to end on, Yeah, that we should make the web more accessible. So let's get to picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So, Paige, you want to start us off on your pick? Sure. Uh, I've got two picks for this week, and the first is going to be in honor of the cold weather that most of us in the Northern Hemisphere are experiencing right now, and it is a, an electric heating blanket. But we we use ours a little bit differently than what you would expect, which would be put it over your sheets on your bed. We actually put it under at the foot of the bed and then turn it on before you hop into bed so that the foot, your feet get nice and toasty right as you get uh-huh. in, which is like the worst part of the cold bed is when your feet are just freezing and you can't warm up. So I would highly recommend anybody who's interested in that, give it a shot turn it on and then get into bed 20 or 30 minutes later and you'll be you'll be so glad that you did. It's like the best trick for warming up in the winter. And then my second recommendation is going to be the second season of Tiger King on Netflix, which I just got around to watching because it is almost as good as the first season and the level of crazy that these people are <laughs> who have tigers and big cats and they gossip about each other. They backstab each other. It's just so ridiculous that there are people out there in Florida, mostly, who are like this and no no heat on Floridians in general. But man, there are some really crazy people who are living down there. And, it, you know, it just it boggles my mind that this is not scripted, that these people are actually <laughs> like this and believe this and... It's something else. It's just, it's kind of jaw-dropping. <laughs> I had no idea they made a second season. <laughs> it's kind of nuts. <laughs> it really no, is. Season, that's enough. I thought, I thought that, that the chapter seemed to have closed at the end of number one. Honestly. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is somebody a murderer? Like, what? Okay. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's a lot of what the second right. season focuses oh. on is what happened oh. to Carol Baskin's first husband because oh. lots of unanswered <laughs> questions that Spoiler. people are trying to armchair detective and figure out what happened. That's hilarious. It really All is. All right, TJ, what you got? I'm going to pick, uh, and longtime listeners will recognize this pick because I'm going to pick the, the In Ember and the Ashes, the series again. So... You'll recall about two or three months, I picked the first book in the series. Well, it is a four book series. So I'm reporting back now, having completed the four books to say it's it's pretty good. The second and third books, I took them a little slow because they're they're a little slower. They're a little less interesting, but they kind of build up the backstory you need to tell the full story. And the fourth book was actually quite good. So I can say it's it's worth the journeys. So that'll be my pick. I think it's worth finishing it to the end. Awesome. Okay, Tom, I'm going to be I'm going to be predictable. And I recommend two things. Shack UI. <laughs> as much as I would like to have an, an esoteric pick, I, I can't help but evangelize about it because 
it's it's changed a lot of things for me um, as a developer. And also, I'm, I've heard about this great book that's coming up. It's called Animating React Native Applications by this, this amazing English man. <laughs> and I heard it's going to be awesome. I heard it's going to solve all your problems. Don't know. We'll see. Okay, we will stay tuned for that. So uh, my pick of the week is going to be, I guess, Marie Kondo and cleaning up your own stuff. So it's January, February going in now. And so I did a huge cleanup of my garage just recently, and I feel so much better about how I'm organized and cleaned and everything. And it just it feels so good. One little trick just from me to you is if you go through all of your hangers in your closet and you just flip them all around right now in January, then next year, if they're still flipped around, then you know that you never wear that thing. So you might as well take it to Goodwill or get rid of it. And it's just an easy, fun, cheap, zero money trick to make sure that you know you have the clothes you actually wear. All right. Well, that kind of wraps us up for this episode. Thank you, Tom, for showing up. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Sam. All right. Well, we'll see you next week on React Roundup. Bye, everybody. See you then. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.